You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. WGDR Plainfield. We gonna change the system. Think about it. And that's the way it was. That's the way it is. And it's always changing, and it's always the same. How's that for psychedelic? We are all seekers after truth. This, 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 this is a special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler. A wanderer. It's always changing and it is always the same. The world is listening.
Good morning, everyone. My guest this morning is Vera Wild. Vera is the author of Skirting Gender, Life and Lessons of a Crossdresser. Vera Wild is a cisgender man born into a man's body who loves to dress and express as a woman. So let's first define what a crossdresser is and what it isn't for you. Because okay. I think people, some people probably make a lot of assumptions about, you know... The, there is obviously a ton of assumptions that go... There's a lot of baggage sort of built around most of the labels for anyone who is sort of gender nonconforming or gender variant. So when it comes to cross-dressing, um, a big part of why I use that um, as a label for as long as I, as I have is because... In my mind, at least, it's strictly descriptive. I dress at times across the gender line from, you know, versus the gender that I was assigned at birth to another gender. So I am cross-dressing. And that is kind of it. But there is a lot of baggage tied up because of assumptions that people will make about why it is that you do it. And that absolutely varies from person to person. So I'm not going to say that this doesn't apply to some cross-dressers, but being a cross-dresser does not automatically mean that you are, being a male to female cross-dresser does not mean that automatically that you are attracted to men. It does not mean that it's a sexual kink or a fetish. It does not necessarily mean that it's a first step in transitioning to living full-time as a woman. All of those things are possible, but none of them are givens. And in my case, I... I, I still don't believe I'm ever going to transition to life full-time as a woman. I don't see that as part of my future. I mean, you said you mentioned me as cisgender. I'm, I don't really feel that I am anymore because I do. So I fluctuate enough at this point that it's, it's sort of in a weird space. And I tend to use the term gender fluid now. Um, but, you know, for a very, very, very long time, I did, I did identify very firmly as a cross-dresser. And since that's the period the book largely is based on that's that's why that term is used there but the cisgender term refers to your origin where it's where it be, where you began well yes does but, it reflect on who you are or how you feel about yourself now well it sort of does though because generally when people use cisgender it's a it is used to mean comfortable and staying in the gender that they were originally assigned in Transgender has its own sort of baggage involved, and people tend to assume it means full transition to the other side. It's actually meant to be more of an umbrella term. So in my case, I don't believe I will ever transition into living full-time as a woman, but I have transitioned away from being full-time as a man with occasional dressing. Like the way sort of – obviously it's audio medium. People can't see. But the way you see me right now with – you know, a bit of a feminine sweater and dangly earrings and obviously my hair the way it is now. This is sort of my default, the sort of in-between sort of thing as opposed to... Your, your Vermont <laughs> style? Yes, we'll go with that. Uh, as opposed to how it used to be for me, which was very... It was a much more rigid separation between male mode and female mode, um, which isn't really the case for me as much now, but again, was for a very long time. Do you still, on occasion, dress up more fully as a woman? I do, although largely at this point it is if I'm performing, because I do perform in drag and burlesque shows. I think a big part of it is that 
previously, and I think that this happens a lot for many cross-dressers, and that's anecdotal, you know, based off my conversations with, with other people like me, is that a lot of us in our earlier days will go full, when we go feminine, we go full feminine. Wig, full makeup, breast forms, high heels, short skirts, shaved legs, the works, because since we're coming from a place of you know, having been born as and probably living for a good chunk of time distinctly male, we have to go to the far end of femininity to to make that connection and make it solid. Whereas now for me, I feel that I am able to tap into and feel that I am at peace with my with the feminine side of myself without having to do all of that in order to get there. Uh-huh. So, yes, I do still um, do, you know, full makeup and, and all of that. But usually if I do, it's because I'm performing or I'm shooting a video. So earlier in your life, when you were, when you did feel the need to dress, do the full female dress up, what was that about? What, what did that, what that, what did that do for you? Well, what it did for me is it largely it enabled, it enabled me to feel comfortable and, um, at in touch with something that I knew I had, like in in and in the book I talk about this. I don't have a very firm answer to the reason why I started dressing. Like I can tell you reasons that were not the case. You know, I was not. I didn't feel that I should have been a girl all along, and it wasn't sexual inherently, and you know all this other stuff. But I I don't know why I do this. But the other thing is, for me, I also don't care. <laughs> I accept that this is part of who I am. It's part of how I live. And I don't really need to know why. But what that sort of means is, is that in the earlier days, going all out just enabled me to more firmly inhabit this side of myself that otherwise on a day to day, I knew was there, but felt annoyingly distant. So there was always this feminine side to myself that I'm like, I know this is here. How can I tap into this so it's not something like gnawing in the back of my head like an unfulfilled, you know, need? How do I how do I feel complete with this side of myself? And for a long time that did require me to do the much more complete um dressing in order to, in order to connect with that. You you wrote in the book that you felt thrilled when you dressed up as a woman that it expressed a kind of sexiness that you didn't experience as a man. It does. Now, again, I have to. I got to be real careful with my uh, explanations. My dressing has never been inherently sexual, but you can feel sexy without something being sexual. And I've never felt uncomfortable with myself as a man. But I like, and I think I'm fairly attractive as a man. I I have a little bit of an ego. I think I'm a handsome guy, but I never really felt sexy as a guy. And I don't know if part of that is because my attractions are towards women. So I feel like I have a better idea in my head of what, or at least to me, what feminine sexy is. And so when I'm able to attain that, I, I get to feel that, oh, I am sexy because I'm looking like what I what I what I enjoy, what what entices me in that way, I get to inhabit that, so I get to feel that I am projecting that. Whereas, you know, I don't I don't have a particularly strong inherent attraction to men, and so I feel like I don't know what sexy for a man is. 
I, I so I've never felt that I am that because I'm not entirely sure I even know what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I can definitely relate to that from my own experience. So where where you grew up in Vermont. Right, I did. Um, and what was your family like? And what was what was your upbringing like? And and what were the kind of things that you were really into and and passionate about growing up? Well, um, I I was raised for most of my what would be considered my formative years by my mother. She's she's a single parent, and we moved here when I was five. So it was in the middle of kindergarten when when we moved here, and being being an only child. And being a latchkey kid, because my mother worked long hours, I was very self-sufficient. I I watched movies until I could memorize them and then act out the parts as the movie was playing, like my own little Rocky Horror Picture Show live thing going on in front of the TV. I played a fair amount of video games. I had friends, but I've... I've never been exceptionally good at, even still, I'm better than I used to be, but I've never been exceptionally good at arranging to see friends. So I I would, I always had friends who like, when I'm with them, this is great, but I never felt comfortable like, hey, do you want to hang out this weekend? So by and large, I've had friends in the situations where we were already together. So like in class, later on in life, like in plays together and, and, and things like that. So my interests have always leaned, for lack of a better term, geeky. Like I, I love Star Wars and I love fantasy and I was really into Magic the Gathering when I was in middle school. And um, and you know, whenever I, I try and write fiction, which I still try and do, it, it always leans fantasy, sci-fi, and, and that sort of stuff. And I've also always had um, an inkling for performance. I, I got bitten by the bug hard on that, um, again, in, in middle school, but I've... How so? Well, um, I, I had been in plays before, but I'd always had minor parts. In seventh grade, we did uh, Oliver, and I got to play Fagin. Which I loved. I loved playing that part so much. I had so much fun with it. I got such positive response back from doing it. I'm like, I, I want this to never stop. So, and which I think in a lot of ways is why I, I have never stopped looking for opportunities to perform. Then since then, whether it be in community theater or burlesque shows, or I tried my hand at stand-up comedy for a little while in New York. That was a mistake. Um, but things of that nature. So my, my natural inclinations are um, are geeky, a little self-indulgent, and a little attention-seeking, to, to put it blatantly. Um, and in terms of growing up, things kind of had a wrench thrown into them when I was about 12, 13, um, because my mother um, got married, and that uh, that was a whole dynamic that didn't didn't work particularly well for me. <laughs> so how how did you begin? How did you discover cross dressing and that that was something that was a powerful experience for you? Well, my earliest memory, and and I say memories because like I I have pictures of myself at like age three playing dress up with the neighbors girls and they've got me in a tutu and a and a flowery cap so like i there is visual evidence that i was in girls clothes at a very young age but i have no conscious memory of that so i don't know what to do with that except 
I suppose, maybe to say that since that sort of thing was never frowned upon or discouraged or whatever, that... And it was also very natural because you were playing with girls. Yeah. And you, you were subject to the clothing that they had. And because you, you grew up with your mother primarily, you you pretty much only had access to her clothing. Yeah. So, you know, I think those early those early days of at least not being told that's not what boys do probably laid a lot of foundational work for me never feeling weird because this is something I've never had a guilt or a purge cycle with this, which a lot of cross-dressers have where they feel, for whatever reason, incredibly guilty about it, get rid of all their feminine stuff, and then, you know, the need doesn't go away, so it becomes a cycle which I've never had. Which for so for them they were perceiving it as a problem in their sense of identity and and who they were in the world whereas it sounds like and from reading your book that you never felt that your cross-dressing inclination was a problem. I never did, at least not for me. I I knew enough even at a fairly young age to recognize that what I was doing was something personal and private and that there were other people who would find it weird. So, like, I was pragmatic enough not to, like, be flaunting that. So my first conscious memories of cross-dressing, I was probably around 10 or 11. So this would have been before my mother remarried. So that meant that when I was at the house alone, I was com- it was me and the dog. <laughs> that's, that's all it was. Dogs are wonderful audiences. Oh, they are. <laughs> I don't think she cared, though. Um, but I, I don't have a firm memory of why I started playing around with my mother's clothes, Perhaps other than, you know, I never had any reason to think that that wasn't something that was okay to do, and I would get bored. I only had so many video games, and I'd seen all these movies that I owned so many times, and we didn't have, um, we didn't get live TV into the house. It was just, you know, the VHS player, and and it was hooked up to the TV, and that was it. So I don't know what the initial impetus was for me to start, other than, like I said, I was probably bored, and I had no reason to think that this is a problem. What I do have a firmer memory of, though, is sort of looking at myself in the mirror, and I was sort of right on the cusp of puberty, so I was starting to have, you know, an interest in girls, and being at that age and having, you know, effectively no body hair, so I do have memories of sort of putting on some of her things and looking at myself in the mirror and sort of mentally cutting off my own head and imagining that I was looking at a girl, like focusing on myself from the neck down. And I don't know at what point sort of visualizing, you know, that I was looking at a girl and thinking of myself as being that girl. I'm not entirely sure where that shift came in because it wasn't like a light bulb snap thing. I think it was just a more gradual, you know, this feels kind of nice thing. And that and and those I mean, that was the that was the early days, which, again, was probably just something to pass the time. But it felt good. It did. It it felt it felt like it was giving me allowance to express myself in ways that I I knew in general were liable to get me picked on. I was never bullied, really, but I mean I knew enough about the social dynamic to know what people did get picked on for. And out of sheer self-preservation, I was always sure, like, okay, just don't behave that way. Don't do this. Don't do that. And some of those inclinations were inherently more feminine. And so it started to become an outlet for that, you know, uh, to be able to put on 
address and sort of twirl and dance a little around the around the house and try on her jewelry because I, you know, I didn't really have any and, you know, sort of looking at, oh, it's so pretty and sparkly and, ooh, that's nice and just getting to enjoy it. But you knew with your stepfather that 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 it wasn't at all safe for for you to be discovered. Yeah. For what so you're doing. I, my stepfather, that there's a I'm, first of all, I'll, I'll point out my my mother is no longer married to him. Um, they got they got divorced quite a bit of time ago, but he was basically there from late middle school all through, well, actually through when I was in college, but, you know, through the rest of my living at home through high school. And he was someone who I was never particularly at ease with in general, which later would sort of solidify itself in both his parenting style and his general outlook, because being raised by my mother... You know, she, she, I mean, she was the parent. She always had final say, but she always made me feel like I had a voice and that my feelings were valid, even if she would sometimes veto, you know, what I was feeling or what I thought. I never felt unheard. His parenting style was much more, you'll do it because I'm the parent. And I said, and you're a minor, therefore your opinion and your feelings have no validity because you're not an adult. That was his entire approach to kids in the first place. Now, he didn't, like, take over the parenting, but that was his attitude towards anyone younger than him. And he had kids of his own. He had six, um, four of whom I ended up, you know, living with for various periods of time in the the same house. But, no, he had a a ton of kids. But this, this was how... He approached it. I am I am the father figure. My my vote supersedes everything. And because of that, your opinion doesn't even matter to me because I can veto it anyway. And then later on it would also become clear that he had a lot of very just I I, I don't like to use this term, but I can't think of another one. He had a lot of very bigoted outputs. Like I the 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 sentence homosexuality is an abomination on the planet earth actually came out of his mouth i'm not projecting that he thought that i know he thought that cuz he said that and again even though i'm not gay i know, i knew enough to know that gender variance was something that he would not distinguish from being gay and would probably have the same opinion about anyway so that did sort of it again it never assigned shame i had no shame in what i was doing but i knew I tend to think that if he had not come into my life, I might have come out to my mother at some point in high school. I ended up not coming out to my mother until I was probably about 25. And a big part of that was because he was in the house. Right. Right. That's that's the impression I got that he was he represented this obstacle to you not only expressing who you were, but being able to even share it with anybody and in that and i'm really curious how how did you first come out or how were you first discovered because you obviously he 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 represented such a strong challenge in that way he he did so first time i was ever uh discovered by anyone was this was in college this would have been my third year of college and it was actually by my girlfriend at the time so at 
this this was the year that I started really re-embracing the side of myself because I had a single that year, a single room dorm, so I didn't have a roommate. Um, and, you know, this sort of side of myself had started getting reawakened anyway because I was hanging out with all in, – in college, I was hanging out with all the drama and theater people who aren't going to judge you for throwing on a bow and sashaying around a little bit if you feel like it. They really don't care. But she – well, and, and despite, you know, whatever my gender identity might be now, I was very much a guy in a single. It was a disaster. <laughs> like clothes everywhere. It was a mess. You could barely step from the door to the bed. So she came over to see me and I went, I think I went to work that morning because um, I was working at Barnes & Noble stocking the shelves in the morning. And she made the very brave decision to try and pick up the room a little bit. I don't know why she thought she <laughs> it would help, but she came across a pair of pantyhose. And so when I came back from work, she confronted me with them and, you know, very upset going, whose are these? Assuming that they belong to another another girl. And knowing that she was already mad and figuring I basically had nothing to lose at that point, I kind of shrugged and looked at the floor and very sheepishly went, those are mine. And she just kind of paused and looked at them and looked at me and she went, oh, well, that's okay then. <laughs> Which was an amazing moment. And honestly, we didn't really like sit down and talk about it for years after that. She just kind of got it. And actually, she was a big part of me getting more comfortable being out and about she we did actually end up getting married we are no longer together although i i always want to stress that my gender expression and this side of myself that we're talking about here today is not the reason we ultimately split up so she was she was never anything other than supportive and especially in those early years was a really big part of me gaining confidence i always had comfort in who i was i didn't always have confidence in it though and she she did help me get there with that and how important is it to to get feedback? Like, not just, like, there's, there's the issue of seeing yourself in the mirror, but also, like, when you're dressing up and you're out in public, well, or when you're considering the idea of going out in public and you're concerned about how you look and how authentic it is. And not, and not... And maybe not feeling comfortable enough just in in how you feel within yourself, but but also having to to take in how other people are going to respond to you and whether they they appreciate whether they think you look good. Well, I mean that for me was was an evolution because again, and I think this anecdotally, I feel this is a journey a lot of cross dressers end up going through, which is that well, first of all. Any positive feedback from someone other than, you know, yourself looking in the mirror is validating, is incredibly validating. And it's especially if you're closeted, it's validating for a side of yourself that um, you don't get to share otherwise, which I think is is also why there's a especially large cross-dressing community online. There's a there's a lot of people, you know, some closeted, some not, but there's a lot of people who go through online sources, whether it be chat rooms or forums or, or, you know, Reddit, subreddits or what have you, seeking that validation, putting themselves out there to get that positive feedback. Because if you're born male, and again, you know, assuming that you are not completely transgender and going, I'm supposed to be a woman and going through that, which, you know, is not my experience. But if you have that side of yourself and you 
you do want it validated in some way. And having it validated by someone else is incredibly potent to a degree that sometimes I think people engage in damaging behavior, chasing that validation. I think everybody does that. Yeah. Um, But in terms of what you said about being comfortable and like to the point of going out, like my very first time going out in public, um, my I'm going to refer to her as my daughter's mother, um, girlfriend at the time, later wife. Um, So she she took me out my very first time going out in public and she did my makeup and she held my hand going out as we went from her car to a midnight screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show where I knew I, you know. The person I was in with in the car, I knew accepted me. The place where I was going, I knew they would accept me. And it was just the walk from one to the other that was nervous. The gauntlet. Yes. But, you know, she was there. She held my hand and I, and I felt safe. So what sort of happened over time in terms of being comfortable going out earlier on? I, and I think, again, most cross-dressers, I was very hung up on the idea of being passable. In other words, looking on site like a woman, not like a guy in a dress. And that's that's not necessarily a, a bad thing to strive for in and of itself, but I think it can be damaging to get hung up on that, and a lot of us do. And if nothing else, my height gives me away, or if not inherently gives me away, at least gives gives people reason to pause and look closer and then spot something else that will give me away because I'm, I'm six feet tall before I put on heels. And, and they're probably very few guys who can really pull that off. Like one example of someone who did it amazingly well was Guy Pierce in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. He he did do it quite well. Yeah. And uh, or um in the sort of American pseudo remake of that, John Leguizamo was incredibly convincing in Tawang Fu, Thanks for Everything Julie Newmar. He was actually impressively passable. Um, so it, it is something that can be achieved, but it is difficult because you're fighting against basically every masculine aspect of your face, your build, and, so it's, and so everything it's not, else. So it's not really a realistic goal to aspire to? For most of us, no. And I, as long as you understand that, it's not bad to strive for that, I don't think. But So eventually I got to the point of I got past worrying whether or not people would see me as a man in a dress and instead just going, okay – so I'm a man in a dress. They can tell I'm a man in a dress. But dang it, I look good. So it, and, and also that it can be an, an enjoyable experience to see somebody expressing in a way that's different. It's I, like, like somebody performing in yeah. a way. And I think, I think my background as a performer helps me a lot because I, the greatest shield that Anyone who is going out in public and is worried about how people will react to the way that they are presenting, your greatest shield is confidence. And I know it's a cliche term, but fake it till you make it does actually work. If you project confidence, honestly, people are not going to hassle you because people hassle folks who they think are easy targets. So if you project confidence, they'll leave you alone. And then you do that long enough, you will actually, or at least for me, I did actually start to feel that confidence genuinely. Um, and actually in the, God, probably 13, 14 years I've been going out in public in dress, I have yet to be, um, you know, verbally or physically accosted. Oh, that's really wonderful. It, it is. And again, that's not to say that it's absolutely safe to do it everywhere where you live. I'm, I'm, that's one of the reasons I love well, being, the reason why I'm I love being in Vermont. Well, the, the reason why I'm saying it's wonderful is because there's so many stories and examples of where people get beaten up or, or, or even killed 
for for doing that. I I worked in the gay section of San Diego at a theater that actually showed Rocky Horror at midnight mm-hmm. one weekend a month. So I got to see all of that happening and people would come in full regalia and the theater was nestled between two gay bars as well so i got to see a lot of the fallout of of the clash of cultures yeah i mean part of it is is a function of time i think at least in certain parts of the country it it has been gradually getting better other parts of the country it has very slowly been getting better but in general, well, we've had some some slidebacks, but I think the overall projection of societal acceptance has been that even if I don't like what I'm seeing, it's a bad look for me to hassle this person in public, I think is the point that most folks have gotten to where and, – and I in many ways, I think that's the Vermont mentality in general. Vermont has a very don't bug me, I won't bug you – live and let live vibe to it as a state. It's one of the reasons I, I love living here. It's one of the reasons I came back. So, I mean, like, at at the last house I lived at, I, I still cannot remember what my neighbor's name was. But when he saw that my um, lawnmower broke, he let me borrow his. And, you know, but he, he, didn't, he didn't care what I did in my time. And he didn't really care about me knowing what he did in his. We all kind of figure it's not anybody's business. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a mentality that um, I honestly I think it was a big part of why we were the first state to have civil unions because I think enough a high enough percentage of the state kind of shrugged and went yeah I, I don't care <laughs> or why not yeah so you go, who's it hurting right <laughs> so how did you how did you fully come out and I know that you end up leaving Vermont and. You, you went to Boston and New York City, and how how did you how did you become comfortable expressing and you know dressing and expressing as a woman? Well, living in Boston and New York was helpful because, as much as I say, I'm now very comfortable you know being you know dressing however I feel like dressing in Vermont. I probably couldn't have gotten there if I just lived here continuously. It helped spending a chunk of time in cities that were large enough that I knew legitimately I would not even be that unusual, and absolutely no one would care so that that certainly helped uh, in terms of of my times um, living there now, in terms of the question of how did I come out it's always funny to me because people ask that assuming that it only happens once it doesn't you're kind of in a continual phase of coming out Whoop! excuse me um so i talk sorry listeners i talk with my hand so i bumped the mic um so like like i said i was discovered for the first time i was probably 20 i came out to my mother at about 25 i came out in new york to some of my co-workers around that same time i started coming out to my close friends who didn't first meet me through things like drag shows and whatnot probably at about 30 and i didn't you know effectively come out publicly like really link my masculine identity to my feminine one until earlier this year honestly like in in a mass public way in terms of like making it clear on facebook and coming out on my non cross dressing related youtube channel and basically 
tearing down most of what was left of the wall that separated these two sides of my life. So, I mean, it, I've effectively come out like four or five times. And at this point, I'm, I'm, you could still say I'm not done because I'm not out at work. Um, I don't think I can be just because of the, the company I work for and the people who work there. I'm like, ah, I just don't think it's a good idea. But And it's not really necessary. I mean, it's not like we're supposed to share all of our private lo- all the private private aspects of our lives with everybody. Well, no, then and, and that is another thing and that's sort of where you know some of the some of the clichés about coming out come from where you know suddenly you've got and again, I say cliche, I mean I, a true stereotype, but there is a certain degree of truth in it, you know, the person standing on the corner of the street just yelling to strangers, "I'm out and I'm proud and you can't do anything about it." Everyone's just kind of going, "Yeah, okay." Um, but you know, you there is a certain degree of an instinct to, especially if you've if you've kept it from certain people or certain elements of your life for a long time, to just sort of express all that hugely and dramatically. But yeah, at the end of the day, most people don't care and don't need to know. Mm-hmm. So you you actually found a community that you felt at least relatively safe in 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 dressing up. For example, there was a bar in Boston that you worked at and you dressed did you did you actually dress as a woman while you worked there? I did. So um I worked at a bar in Boston, a bar that is not very far from um from Fenway actually. It's well <laughs> it's actually two bars. There's the upstairs bar and the downstairs bar. They were both gay bars. I started to work I had already I had gone to bartending school and I applied to work there because I figured gay bar I'm gonna get better tips. Um, and I did. So, but there was the upstairs bar, which was the leather bar. That was Ramrod. I would help stock that bar. I didn't work that bar. Downstairs was Machine. That was the dance club. That was where I would work. And yes, I not always, but more often than not, I would come to work in some degree of dress. Um, and they they had drag performances there once a week and that was sort of my initial foot into to that world as well but yeah so i've i found various communities over time so in boston it was through the bar and getting connected to drag and then once i moved to new york i found burlesque which i'm even more at home at than i am in drag performance i would love for you to talk about burlesque and why that was you were much more at home with burlesque than than other performance styles than drag. I I think there's a handful of reasons for that. And uh, this is going to sound really bad. It's going to sound like I'm slagging off the drag community. And I really don't mean to be, but again, I can only speak to my personal experience. just let it all hang out. That's what I'm going to have to do. (laughs) So um, initially, uh, there's a lot of very intricate and sometimes very hard to penetrate politics at play in the drag community. There are drag houses. Most people who intend to get into this need to find a drag mother who will mentor them. I was never part of that system. I never got adopted by a drag mother. I never got I never got the proper, you know, welcoming in. And now, in Boston, that wasn't so much an issue because since I worked at a bar they were already performing at, they were used to me being around. Once I got to New York, it the, the whole scene felt a, a bit less welcoming and in, increasingly so when they found out that I wasn't gay. Mm. Um, I, 
So talk about that part, too. Yeah. So I don't know if this is something that's gotten better in the drag community overall, but certainly at the time, and this would have been, you know, like 10, 12 years ago, there was still the very strong sense that this is a gay man's art form. And so once word got around that I wasn't gay, the, you know, there were some not very quiet whispers backstage and a lot of sideways glances. And I wasn't shut out necessarily, but I never had the, I was never given opportunities to sort of push things forward. And also part of that is a lot of them, as far as they were concerned, I didn't do drag right. Um, because there's a, there's a, while there are lots of different things you can do with drag, there are certain things that are considered very rigid, like this is drag. Like the drag queen makeup style is incredibly distinctive with the heavy contours and the, you know, the ton and ton of eye work and massive wigs. And I don't really do any of that because it's just, it doesn't play to my own sensibilities either in terms of style or as a performer. And what I ended up, what ended up happening was I sort of stumbled onto burlesque. Because this will date me and make me feel really old. Um, I had a MySpace friend who uh, took a burlesque class. This was in New York. And she invited me to go to their graduation because the class got to perform, you know, as amateurs. And so I'm watching and, you know, they were very amateur. But I also got to see their their instructor, um, Dottie Lux, perform as well. And I'm watching them and I'm going... This entire approach is way more in line with what I was trying to do in drag, and they kept giving me the sense that that didn't belong in drag. I'm like, I think I might possibly belong here because this just plays to my performance sensibilities way better. And then I had the delight of finding out that burlesque communities in general are very accepting of not only, you know, gender variants and different body types and all sorts of things, but also to newcomers. The, the basic rule of thumb of burlesque is all are welcome. The only rule is don't half-ass it. As long as you go up there and whatever you're doing, you give it your all, you will be as welcome as, you know, doing it for the first time as someone who's been doing it for 10 years. So for people who don't know what burlesque is, Talk about what it is, basically, and how how you, your style, or what made it work for you, made, made it something that, that you, you felt at home doing. Oh, and, yeah. And that really expressed much more of who you were and what you were trying to accomplish. Yeah. So burlesque, um, in, very broadly speaking, as it exists right now, because it's gone through a lot of evolution, it's been a lot of different things at a lot of different times. Um, burlesque now, since sort of the revival of it in the late 90s, is in short, it is striptease. But it is different from like going to a strip club and watching a stripper because the the way that I put it is in a strip club, and this is not to undermine strippers. I've seen strippers who can do things like with their bodies and on pole. I'm like, I could never do that and I would kill myself trying. So all respect to them. But generally when you go to a strip club, the stripping in and of itself is the point. You are there to see people naked. That is why you're there. Burlesque stripping is the medium. 
it's the way that you are expressing something. And but burlesque performers, with very few exceptions, depending on the venue and the performer, do not get fully naked. You know, there are pasties covering nipples and there are g-strings and thongs, so you're not getting completely naked. Generally, a pasty reveal happens in the last five to twenty seconds of a three to five minute number. So it's not about going look at me naked. It's about let me take you on this journey from how I started to where I end. Now, there are different kinds of burlesque. Um, Classic burlesque, which is not really my thing, is actually a little bit closer to the drag queen thing because classic burlesque is very much about huge presentation of, you know, big feathered fans and and more rhinestones than you could ever count. So much sparkle and, and, and sort of showing off that. I lean more towards what is generally considered to be neo-burlesque and sometimes nerd-lesque specifically, which is, you know, geeky-themed stuff. But why it appeals to me is because by its nature you end in a different state than when you started, that gives it storytelling possibilities. And that is the appeal to me of burlesque, whereas doing a drag performance, the expectation is you get up there and you lip-sync to a song and you look really dang good doing it. But if you are telling a story, it's just whatever story is already being told by the lyrics of the song you're lip syncing to or that you've cut together because a lot of drag queens do that. But what I love about burlesque is it is inherently about a journey. It is inherently about a transformation because the very nature of the art form, you start looking one way, you end looking another. And so I love the possibilities that that gives for what I can do with a character and or what I can do about the impact of something, someone's shifting a sense of themselves, someone expressing anger or lust or any number of things. It just, it appeals to my sensibilities as a performer and as someone who likes to tell, not just show off, I do like to show off too, but not just show off, but to communicate something in doing so as pompous as that probably sounds well i don't think that because i think for you you're 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 wanting to tell or damn or perform a a meaningful story that's not just you know get to the destination but it's like the whole dance the whole process of getting there well i mean how meaningful the stories is very i'm not above doing doing silly things but just i mean for yourself yes because it's, it's a it's a multifaceted thing because there's the performance aspect of it, it immersing yourself in it, putting your whole body and soul and, and being into it and how good you feel about the performance because you know, stories are just stories in a sense, but it's how you animate them that, that, and how you bring them to life that, that makes it work. Yeah, and, and like I said, I... It was funny discovering burlesque because I had been trying to integrate, not stripping, so to speak, but, you know, costume changes that would indicate a shift in character into my drag numbers. And it was, I probably could have gotten better at that with time, but it wasn't quite clicking because that's not really what drag, some drag queens do do that, but that's not really what drag is built to do. Whereas from the ground up, that is what burlesque is built for. It is built for the change and the transition from one thing to the next or and possibly the next, the next, the next, depending on how many layers you're stripping off. And you, you're currently involved with Vermont 
burlesque? Yeah, um, I I am most primarily involved with Green Mountain Cabaret. Oh, that's right. Um, out out in Burlington, I'm I'm not a member of the dance troupe, but I do host. Um, and they do, and I do guest spots, uh, guest dancing performances on occasion. But there's a surprisingly robust burlesque community in Vermont. There's there's Viva Vermont Burlesque, which usually has things happen around Burlington. There's a growing um, sort of community happening in White River Junction. It's it's uh, it's it's building, which is really exciting to see. And that's something that you you still enjoy. Oh, I love it. Uh. Oh, I love it to death. So what is it? What is it that you get? What is what is the feeling that you experience doing that? Well, I mean, it it taps into my inherent desire just as a performer because you know if I wasn't if I wasn't doing this, I'd probably be still be doing community theater more than I am. The main reason I don't do that so much is just because rehearsal schedules are really hard for me to work because I have a kid now. Um, but you know, it, I it scratches that itch of I I want to get on a stage and I want to connect with an audience and I want to express something that that they can relate to through a character that is not necessarily me. Um, so whereas my cross-dressing in general, I feel very strongly is not, you know, the, what you're seeing right now and the whole notion of Vera is is not a performance. Vera is an element of myself that's as a person. As a stage persona, um, and performing as Vera Wilde as opposed to just existing, that does allow me to get more into things that are distinctly being characters and and sort of putting on more of a of a of a performance, um, which is not inherent in my cross dressing. So it's it's a case of I have my desire to cross dress, which again I I don't feel as a performance and I don't feel it's an affectation. It's just a. It's just an emphasizing of different parts of me that are always there, anyways. But that's evolved. That, that has evolved, but sort of the distinction, the, the sort of they come to a head because I've got that, and then I've got my desire to be a performer, which is kind of its own thing. But they get they get to mesh when I do when I do burlesque shows. Mm-hmm. So let's get back to where you are now. You've over over the course of your life, you've. You've somehow, um, and maybe you can talk about how that's evolved. You've you've integrated your male and female personas in a way that it seems like you feel very at home with. I do, and so, like I said, in in the earlier days, I had a much cleaner division between sort of boy mode, girl mode. And, and that, you know, that was back also when if I was going to dress feminine, I had to go all out, you know, couldn't do halfway because that didn't, that didn't feel like it was connecting me to that side of myself. And gradually over time, um, there were just a lot of baby steps towards feeling less like, all right, now I'm expressing myself like this. Now I'm expressing myself like that and allowing for cross pollination and, and bleed over and like sort of what I talked about of making that leap of not saying I have to be 100% convincing as a woman, but just I need to feel like I look good, whether people can see me as a man in a dress or not. That sort of mentality eventually evolves further down with further down the line with just sort of going, well, you know, do I have to partition off these two halves of myself? And I didn't have, um, 
I mean, I sort of did when I came out at, at my most public earlier this year, but I, for myself and my internal workings, I didn't have a specific moment of like bashing down that wall. But over time, I let the wall separating those fall into gradual disrepair to the point that I'm not sure there's much of it left anymore. Well, we'll get more into that later, I, probably toward the end okay. when I ask you about your experience with um, meeting Tim Curry. Oh. But not yet. I think <laughs> okay. that, that's a good place to end, I think. What, l- let's talk about names and pronouns and identity politics and how, how you deal with that and your thoughts and feelings about that. Pronouns are, are, are a funny thing. I've only started being asked, you know, what are your preferred pronouns? Probably in the last year, year and a half or so. Um, and it's been, <laughs> it's been an odd experience because I know people just want a simple answer. And unfortunately, I can't give one because in my case, it is completely situational. Um, it depends on my headspace and how I'm presenting. So for myself, I've just at this point kind of defaulted to going, look, Whatever you think of when you when you think of me, whatever is the first thing that popped in pops into your head, go with that. So th- as a as a result of that, people who know m- most of the people who I'm friends with out in the Burlington area who know me primarily through burlesque and performance there, they pretty much know me as Vera, and they tend to think of me in feminine terms, and they will use f- female pronouns for me. Um, where I live in the Northeast Kingdom, most people who know me there know me or ha- at least knew me first in a more masculine mode tend to still address me by uh, my masculine name and tend to use male pronouns, both of which I'm fine with. And my partner, uh, who funnily enough actually lives about <laughs> in the middle of those two places, um, she lives in Montpelier, she basically just rolls, she can cue off me and roll with whatever I'm going with at a given time. In terms of talking pronouns in the broader spectrum of things, th- there's a lot to unpack because, you know, there's there's the just flat out respecting people's preferred pronouns, and there's there's a there's a frustrating trend with some conservatives to very much put their feet down and refuse to do that, and it's one of those things that is really infuriating for me because regardless of your opinion or your stance on transgender or gender nonconformity or whatever it may be, you're just being a jerk. Like even if you do not believe that someone, even if they go through a full transition, can can become the other gender, you're just refusing to engage on a, on a basic level of humanity. You're refusing to be respectful. So like – and when it comes to people like that, like I disagree with a lot of what, but I can still be respectful to you. I can, I can make the choice to not treat you like I'm a jerk. So people who deliberately misrespect pronouns, I have very little patience and even less use for. Um, and of course, pronouns also get more complicated because as sort of society comes to a better understanding uh, that g- of gender as a spectrum as opposed to a binary – we do have all the people who kind of fall in the middle with non-binary or agender um, and, and a lot of other terms, some of which I can't even remember. Which can be very awkward to use. It, it can be, especially because in, in English we don't have a universally agreed upon first-person gender neutral, which is why a fair number of them use they, them as right. pronouns. Which I find to be awkward. And I've had, I've had at least two guests who – it's funny. At Goddard for the last couple of years – 
in their at the bottom of their email it says preferred pronoun. It's listed, you know, in in their yep in their tag, email tags, and um, which has made me think about that and for myself even. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of the they them, that's that's a hard thing because that clashes with the fact that you know we've had it hammered in. That's a plural pronoun, and right? You have exactly. To, you have to use it for and a single. It's kind of person. abstract as well. It is, and I mean, it's frustrating. But again, it's it's just the nature of the language. We're we're you need to remember that people aren't saying call me they them because they're trying to make it difficult. It's by default because mm-hmm. they don't really have a. There's sing- nothing better. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Th- there are technically speaking single person gender neutral terms but they're not in wide circulation most people haven't even heard of them so it's unhelpful to try and insist on that right as i was preparing for this it finally dawned on me that and it really surprised me that it didn't occur to me earlier but they and them referring to the plural really actually referred to both the male and female because with you this is applicable, and my last guest also has. There's some photos of them dressed both as a man and a woman in in the same picture, just demonstrating that. So it really occurred to me that, well, and but this is. I'm sure this isn't universal, but but there are as, there are male and female aspects to all of us. Yes, and and that is true for some people. Some people who use they them actually don't identify as either and very much feel that they are either some third option or they are kind of not even part of that game. But yes, certainly for some of us, they them can be reflective of sort of our own dual nature. I, as you said, not universal, but for some of us certainly. That said, I, like, I don't have a problem with they, them. It's not something that I use because I, I still have that mental roadblock about, about plural versus singular. So it throws me off to be referred to that way. But I also don't mind it. I don't take offense to it. Mm-hmm. And there's also the dynamic of androgyny. And you have a term that we can't use on the air. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately. But we can allude to it, which you you coined as gender F to -hmm. give people an idea, which is, you say, is the opposite of androgyny. Yeah. So this was a concept I was introduced to by a friend of mine in New York um, named Sid London, who's a wonderful photographer and and was for a time a, a drag performer. And she... She introduced me to this concept, and yet, so the way that I embody that, because I, when, I, when I host burlesque shows, I do it in actually a different persona called Snow, who, who is um, done that way. So if androgyny is minimizing the sexual characteristics to the point that you can't really tell if it's a man or a woman, this concept is emphasizing the sexual characteristics so strongly but having them be representative of both genders and so it's not a case of oh i don't know if this is a man or a woman because i can't really see distinct features it's a case of i don't know if this is a man or a woman because my brain is firing that's male that's female what is going on Mm -hmm. it's that approach which is not something that i do so much just going out in public but is is something that i will do more um on stage is more deliberately provocative. Mm-hmm. So when I'll perform with that mindset, I will use my largest bre- breast forms, and I will also use a packer, which is something usually that drag kings use, you know, to to create 
a very obscene bulge. And so that you look at me on stage and your brain is getting contradictory information. And that's in the case of that, that is very deliberate on my part. Mm-hmm. And that reminded me of drag kings. And I would love for you to talk about drag kings because I think drag kings are something that most people probably aren't aware of or haven't been exposed to. So drag is, I, I, I encountered drag kings when I was in New York. So like I said, initially I was, I tried to get in with the drag queen community there and was not as welcome as I was in Boston. And that's also partially just a New York thing because if you move to New York, they don't care who you were anywhere else. They care what have you done in New York? And the answer is, well, nothing. Then go away. Um, so I I found Drag Kings again by accident looking for other ways to perform since I wasn't feeling like I was getting much luck in the drag queen circles. So there is a drag group, a drag troupe um, that still exists um, called Switch and Play out of Brooklyn. And they, I don't know if they still do, but they used to do what they called an open drag night, which anyone doing any kind of gender bending performance could come and perform and I started going there and I was usually the only drag queen there because the the troupe itself at the time was made up entirely of drag kings which if you hadn't guessed by the name is what it sounds like if a drag queen is a man doing an exaggerated performance as a woman a drag king is a woman doing an exaggerated performance as a man and I really came to love that community because about on par with burlesque, I think the drag king community is incredibly welcoming um, and is much more – there's a lot more camaraderie in it than in drag queens. And I think, honestly, part of that has to do with the gender stereotypes that they play into because with drag queens generally, you you are intentionally, to the point of camp, exaggerating feminine qualities. And one of the feminine qualities that – or feminine sort of angles that most drag queens go for is the diva. And when you push that far into diva, it that's just going to be how you start to relate to each other. And as a result, most drag queens, unless they are, unless they have a direct you know drag mother drag daughter relationship sort of thing, they don't really see each other as a community. They tend to see each other as competition mm-hmm. more often than not. Whereas drag kings, what's the exaggeration of masculinity? Well, it's the bro mentality. Which means that drag kings are very are very buddy buddy. They're very like, hey bro, let's go hang out and you know do stuff together because it's they they gravitate towards a stereotype of men that you know while certainly can have its toxic elements, they they get to gravitate towards this sense of you know bros together. We're all gonna you know link up and we're stronger as one. And it it means that in general the vibe of the community is much more welcoming than it is for drag queens which i think is a big part of why with drag kings you see a lot of troops um in th- there are some drag queens in vermont and they are they are sort of more single performers around here but i think that's just cuz there aren't that many of them but you go to larger cities if you find drag queen drag kings it's usually going to be in troops of four or five or more because that's the nature of sort of the the way that they bond together by embracing masculinity. Whereas drag queens, you don't find, you know, there are drag queen houses where they sort of like align with each other, but they don't perform together. They don't get billed as a team. And the drag kings don't do the diva 
trip? No, as a, as a rule of thumb, they they generally don't. Um, you know, some of them in specific personas can lean that way, but it's 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 a rarity in in that case. And so then it's not a tradition. Yeah, no, th- there isn't. There isn't the inherent tradition of combativeness and rivalry. Cattiness. Yes. Yeah. The, there's a whole element of, I mean, if anyone has ever watched RuPaul's Drag Race, they, they have an entire thing about throwing shade. And that's not seen as a bad thing. That is part of the drag queen community is you throw shade at each other and you dress each other down. That's part of how they interact with each other. And drag kings don't really do that. Well, I haven't directly experienced any drag kings, but I think a, a, perhaps a good model of it would be the role that Joel Grey plays in Cabaret. Yeah, I think that's... Even though he's a man doing it, that back back in Germany at the time, there was a lot of, a lot of, of that kind of stage performance of drag kings yeah, I, I think that's that's not too far off the mark. And I I always I always get a kick out of drag kings anyways because in the same way that, you know, drag queens exaggerate femininity to the point of camp, drag kings do the same thing. And I kind of enjoy seeing these super exaggerated, you know, they're doing push ups on the stage and they're <laughs> it's it's doing just, the caricatures. Yeah. Yes. It's I, one I know, I, I love that too. I, I, yeah. I there's something I I take a, a I take more inherent joy in seeing male traits um, done to the point of caricature than I do female traits. I'm not sure if there's a particular reason for that, but I I just <laughs> I, re- I really get a kick out of that. So let's get into the the bathroom thing. Like when you go out dressed as a woman in public, and and you you have to use or you're you might have to use a public bathroom, there's there's a lot of stuff coming up around that in our culture. There is. And thankfully, Vermont recently passed a law, which I so amazingly grateful for, which was that any public bathroom that is single occupancy, meaning you go inside there and lock the door and you're the only one in there as opposed to, you know, a stall setup, that those all be marked as general neutral, gender neutral. So that means that in Vermont, you, as if you can find a single occupancy bathroom, you don't even have to worry. You don't even have to make that call. That said, when I'm in situations where the only options are, you know, sort of the rows of stalls and those are still divided by gender, you know, men's room, ladies room, it depends on where I am and what's going on. And and this is this is a call I make not only for my own safety but also for the comfort of of other people. Well, let's just let's just assume that it's it's not in a in an environment where you would normally feel safe in. Yeah. Okay. So if it's not at like a drag or trans or pride event, in which case I'll just use the ladies' room because mm-hmm. I know no one's going to judge me. If it's not that, then I will more often than not use the men's room. Just because I'm not so, I'm not so uncertain about myself that I I like will panic about doing that. And also at this point, also remember if I'm going out and I'm going out like you see me now, it's a bit of a mix mm-hmm. because unless I'm performing, I'm not doing full on feminine anymore. Right. Back when I used to do that more, honestly, I would 
try and get the layout of the area I was in first and figure out where is there a single occupancy bathroom because I would make deliberate choices to not go into stall situations at all because I knew the options were either I go into a ladies room and make everybody crazy uncomfortable and come off like and may and they think I'm a pervert no matter what I do in there or I go into a men's room which is legitimately flat out dangerous um, no matter where you are, no matter how accepting the environment, um, you know, the area in usually might be, the a big part of the problem with bathrooms is that if bathrooms, while technically public spaces, are just private enough that what I talked about before, that sense that even people who don't like me, they don't hassle me in public because, you know, there are witnesses, bathrooms are just private enough that People who really don't like me or people like me and what I do will feel emboldened because they don't feel like there are eyes on them. Mm-hmm. So I, it, it becomes an incredibly difficult call if you are, um, if you are very clearly going, you know, full feminine, and you need to use the bathroom. It, it becomes a question of. <sighs> of everyone else's comfort versus your safety. And that's not a call I'm going to make for anyone else. Everyone it has to make the call that works best for them. And 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 the environment that they're in. Yeah. But like I said, at, at this point, presenting more mixed as I do, I'll usually just pop into the men's room because it's just easier. And also you're, you're not being f- flashy. And I think that people like, like you're describing probably – and more inclined to respond to the flashiness, whereas that kind of person might look at you and, and just be confused. Yeah, I, I think the confusion grants me a basically a an escape window. So someone encountering me like as I am right now in a men's room is probably going to be thrown off enough that they won't know what to do. So if... If they were going to hassle me, it's got, in the amount of time that they have to figure out what they even want to do, I can leave. Whereas if I was in the men's room presenting more full feminine wig, full makeup, painted nails, skirt, they it makes it much easier for them to make a snap judgment and decide right off, oh, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Here's my opportunity. I'm not sure these people necessarily look for opportunities to do these sorts of things. But it's an it's an impulsive thing. Yes, it yeah. it, it it grants it can grant them the space where they feel like I can do something about this thing that I'm not okay with. Mm-hmm. So, if you're just joining us or wondering who I'm talking with, I'm talking with Vera Wild. Vera is the author of Skirting Gender, Life and Lessons of a Crossdresser. And I've been very remiss about I, <laughs> mentioning your name and who you are. Um, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. So getting back to um, names and pronouns, you, you mentioned that you... You're comfortable either way being called Vera or Nathaniel? Yes, which, which is, you know, my birth name and that's my masculine name. And you've, you've come in a very fluid and natural way. You've, you've really integrated both. Do you, so within yourself, 
how do you is well how do you how do you feel about yourself and how do you identify yourself and is it something that that changes depending on moment to moment and circumstances or how does that how does that play out in your life well um even though the the book is called life and lessons of a crossdresser because it's it's based off you know my life and the things that i've learned during the period of time where i that was very firmly how i identified in the last couple of years the um if asked about how i identify i generally go with gender fluid which i feel is a very appropriate term because my sense of gender basically doesn't stay put it will meander more towards the masculine more towards the feminine it's settle in the middle for some time it but whatever it is or however long it is in one point or another it's not going to stay there for, for very long so in terms of my sense of self I like I don't have like a conscious switch in my head of thinking oh now I'm Nathaniel now I'm Vera I think it's more that whatever is going on um, in a combination of the circumstances I'm in and the headspace that I'm in will bring out one side more than the other. So like I, I kind of mentioned my YouTube channels. I have two of them. I have one for Vera Wild, which is, um, you know, videos about cross-dressing and, and, and gender fluidity. And I have one called Council of Geeks, which is me talking about Doctor Who and Star Wars and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And like I find that inherently certain things tend to bring out more one side or the other. So like when I geek out, that tends to bring my masculine side out a bit more. Like versus us talking now, my if I start geeking out, my voice will drop into a more masculine space and I and it sort of just plays to more that that side of myself. Whereas um like if if I feel like dancing, I I can't dance as a guy. I feel really weird dancing. I don't know how to dance as a guy. But like that'll that'll lean towards my feminine side and my feminine in- inclination. So it it is ve- it is largely circumstantial, but because I've sort of accepted myself of look, it doesn't matter where it is right now because it's gonna move anyway. I don't. I, it's not like I have a a crisis of a of identity about myself of oh my god, where am I right now? It's like it doesn't matter where I am. It's gonna change in five minutes anyways. So then you don't really have uh, an official border crossing. No, not not really. Um, and you're comfortable with yourself wherever you are. I absolutely am. I This is one of the sort of, I think in many ways, is the odd things about me just as a person, which is I have a, I not only am comfortable, I find an odd degree of comfort in uncertainty, mm. like in general, mm-hmm. just because in my life, like I know I don't know everything and I can't know everything and that's fine. Mm. And I love that. <laughs> I love that. I think, I think that's, that's a wonderful quality to embrace. And to embody. It's it served me very well, and it's and again, I think that's just a general sort of world outlook that probably came about independent, but it does it does help feed a, a healthy relationship with myself because, you know, if I were to try and really nail down and put myself in a box, well, you know, <laughs> the box doesn't fit. It's a it's a big amorphous box. <laughs> yes, it's it's. <laughs> It's a it's a box made it's of not, it's a it's, box made of rubber. It's not a box that that most people will recognize as a box. No. <laughs> so, talk about your gender fluidity within the context of your relationships. You're attracted to women. Yes. How does how does that 
fit in and how does that affect your relationships or does it? Um, so far, it really hasn't. Um, so in terms of significant relationships um, with people who you know are aware of this side of myself, I've, I've had two. I have um, my daughter's mother who I was with for a very long time. We were married for 12 years and we dated for a long time before that. Um, and my current partner I've been with for two years. And in both cases, they were aware of this side of myself before things got really serious. So I'm incredibly fortunate in that I've never had to come out to someone who I was already seeing, which is a nightmare scenario for a lot of cross-dressers because a lot of us have um, enough of a period of either uncertainty or self-doubt that we're not comfortable telling other people and you know we try and you know we live our lives almost kind of separate from our cross-dressing but then you get into a relationship and it goes on long enough they need to know if it's that if it's a significant part of who you are they do need to know that and it's really a nightmare scenario for a lot you need you need to reveal it to them in a way on on your terms rather than discovering it and and also kind of discovering that that you've been withholding something. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing. I've seen and 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 again, anecdotally, I know of a lot of relationships that have broken down over the revelation of cross-dressing. But the thing is, more often than not, it's not the cross-dressing that's the problem. It's the it's the betrayal of trust. It's mm-hmm. the sense that you were withholding something this core to your being from the person you were supposedly sharing your life with for so long. You cannot blame the other person from going, oh, my God, what else don't I know about you? And it basically obliterates trust and puts you back at square one. and Or, or much further back. Possibly e- even worse. But as I said, that is much more damaging than – usually that is much more damaging, damaging than what that person's actual feelings about gender fluidity might be. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm incredibly fortunate that I've never been put in that situation. So for your – girlfriends were was it just a non-issue for them or was it something that they actually enjoyed about you or or were perhaps even attracted to i i'm not sure in in the case of um, my daughter's mother i think it was certainly something she appreciated her attractions to me were of were towards me as a man she, you know, she never had a problem or an issue with my feminine side, but she didn't have an inherent attraction to my feminine side either. But so there, it was really just a non-issue. And again, in my case, it helps that my my dressing and my expressions of femininity are not inherently sexual for me. For many cross-dressers, they are. It, you know, their gender expression is closely tied to their sexuality, and that can complicate things for some people. Again, not the case for me. So with that, it was kind of a non-issue. With my current partner um i'm actually not even entirely sure i haven't i haven't like flat out asked her what is it about me that you're attracted to but you know knowing her own history that she that she is bisexual that probably helps and probably makes things a little easier so it sounds like she's very comfortable with your gender fluidity coming from her own sexual fluidity yeah i i think that was a help ultimately a complete non-issue yeah or if anything, it's even it enhances everything because again, it's like the box, the <laughs> box that's not a box. <laughs> yeah, 
a little bit. It's, it's I, I don't want to speak too much about how she does or doesn't feel because I don't like speaking for right, right. for for other people. But I'm just imagine I'm projecting myself into into that myself, which yeah is dangerous to do. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> but yeah, it's. And, and again, in, in both cases, it really helped that they, they already knew before the relationship got really serious. I mean, in the case of my daughter's mother, she did discover. So we were dating, but like it, it was college hookup dating when she found out. It hadn't gotten serious yet. Where, and with my current partner, <laughs> it's funny. We actually have known each other since middle school. We went to, we went to the same um, middle school and high school. And then I ran into her again after having moved back here, uh, actually at a burlesque show, and we sort of reconnected uh, there. But she's we've we weren't friends in middle school and high school, but we knew each other. So that that's that's kind of a funny one to to look back on. And and again, her her encountering me as an adult was initially encountering me in female mode because I was at a burlesque show. So it was immediately oh. I know you, you're back around. Oh, and hey, here's a whole new piece of information immediately. <laughs> so being gen- so gender fluid as you are, does does that help you in being accepting of your girlfriend being bisexual? I I suppose. Like that's never been a hang up for me so it, anyways. It it essentially makes it a non issue. Well, I mean, honestly, I think it I would like to think for me it'd be a non-issue anyways because I'm not I'm not a jealous person by nature. I don't I don't feel threatened if someone I I'm with goes, "Oh, that person over there is cute and I think I'm crushing on them." I'm not threatened by that. I think I, more often than not, I think that's adorable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, that's I don't really have a particularly strong jealousy response to get triggered in the first place. You know, even before you bring issues of of sex of bisexuality into it. So, let's let's talk about meeting Tim Curry and and the profound effect that had on your life. And this is this is something that happened to last year. This this is recent. This is a little over a year ago that this happened. So, and, and we have a full nine minutes. So you can tell the story. Okay. So I I started going to a comic book conventions in the last few years, and I had been to Boston Comic Con I think two years ago, and I enjoyed it well enough, but it was really big and it was a long drive and it was kind of overwhelming, and I didn't think I would go back there again. I you know I settled for the Vermont Comic Con and and smaller things. Um, but then I saw that Tim Curry was going to be there in you know one of those appearances where you could meet him and and get something signed and or you know pre-signed in his case because he's he's had a stroke in the last few years so he's he's a little bit um, inhibited in that way and I had uh, that whole end of comic conventions conventions in general the the meet this celebrity is something that I have had little to no interest in like it would be nice to meet these people but I don't. I honestly thought that there was nobody that would make me pony up the extra money because it is it is a lot of extra money to get to beat these people. I didn't think there was anyone that I would be willing to do that for. And then I found out he was there. I'm like, that, him. I will do that to meet Tim Curry because Rocky Horror Picture Show was, I think in a lot of ways, a very big part of my early development. It was a movie my mother introduced me to when I was 13. 
and I think still is the film that best exemplifies the concept of let your freak flag fly. We're all weird and it's okay. So um, I, I went down to Boston Comic Con, stood in line forever in heels. That was a mistake. I should have worn flats. But the, the way that I was done up, I did my makeup. I had dangly earrings. Um, I had, I had uh, a vest. I had a dress shirt. I had a tie. I had jeans. And I had boots, um, you know, heeled boots. So I was doing very much a mixed presentation. And there were a number of other people in line who were very clearly – it was clear that most of the people wanting to meet him, it was related to Rocky Horror Picture Show. And actually, there were other members of the Rocky Horror Picture Show cast there as well, um, which I didn't even know <laughs> because I, I had such Tim Curry tunnel vision that I didn't realize till I got there. So there were a fair number of people in cosplay for Rocky Horror Picture Show characters. And I made a deliberate decision to not do that because I didn't – that – Film and his performance in that film was important enough to me that I didn't want to meet him as a character. I wanted to meet him as me. And so stood in line forever, like you do. Finally got my time there, and, and I didn't really know what I was going to say to him. But I, I, I went up to him. Uh, he, he is in a wheelchair, so I had, to, I had to kneel down. And I said that – I said a couple of things. I told him that I – he was the first actor who I recognized as an actor. Like I would see him in multiple movies and go, oh, you know, as opposed to a character. Because, you know, when I was really young, someone like Harrison Ford was either Indiana Jones or Han Solo. He wasn't Harrison Ford, the actor. Whereas someone like Tim Curry, I saw in something like Clue and then Legend and then later on down the line, um, Rocky Horror Picture Show and, you know, really recognized him like, oh, this is a this is a performer. And so I mentioned that and then I said, you know, that his performance in Rocky Horror Picture Show was a really big part in my early development of me being comfortable and, and being in a position to be able to accept who I was. And he kind of paused and looked at me and said, and who are you? And it's funny because on paper – that could have set off a panic response of me going, oh, God, I forgot to introduce myself. Oh, crap, I blew it. But it didn't. Instead, there's something about his tone and the way he asked that that made it feel like the most sweetly profound <laughs> question that I could have been. It's like it's being asked, and who are you, in a profound way as opposed to a, and who are you exactly, sort of thing. And in that moment, without hesitating... Um, I said to him, I'm Nathaniel. And I hadn't made a conscious choice ahead of time about what name to use because, like I said, I, I forgot to even introduce myself by name, so it, did, it hadn't even occurred to me. But in that moment, with zero hesitation, looking the way I did, with makeup, with lipstick, with earrings, you know, very clearly not presenting completely masculine, I still gave the name that is on my driver's license, the name that is on my birth certificate, and I didn't feel a moment of panic after doing that. And as much as I do feel that I haven't really had a lot of revelatory light bulb moments in my life, that is possibly one of the very few where sort of in that moment, these elements of my life snap together as one person. And that I could look like this. And I didn't, if I didn't want to, I didn't have to say, I'm Vera. 
I could say I'm Nathaniel, it's okay to be Nathaniel and look like this. It's okay to be Vera and not have full dress. I don't have to tie this specifically to how I'm presenting at any given moment. And it it was such a it was such a little moment. And I, I don't doubt that I'm probably to some degree projecting um into this, but I don't care because it meant so much to me and and I got to I got to take my picture with him. And he also said he liked my earrings, which was which was really sweet. Mm. That's a really wonderful story. I I loved the way the book ended on the on that note. It's it felt like the right thing to to end with, you know, aside from a kind of an epilogue looking forward general evolutionary thought, because it it if amongst other things, it was like the most recent significant thing that had happened to me, but it it really did feel like um a moment of closure's the wrong word. Clo- closure implies an end of things, but a um a particularly distinctive moment of next step. And like I said, I have a great deal of comfort in uncertainty. So where I go from here, I don't know, but I'm very excited to find out. Hmm. What a beautiful way to live. <laughs> I the, the possibilities of where I could end up excite me. Like how I live right now and how I express myself is something that I wouldn't think I would be doing if you had asked me five years ago. And if you had asked me 10 years ago, I don't think I could even conceive of how I'm currently living. And yet at the same time, I, for myself, it's very important to feel like I don't feel like the points prior to now where I was living differently were wrong or were incomplete or I wasn't living my truth. I was living my truth at the time. What my truth is has changed and will probably continue to change. And I think that's one of the major reasons why I feel like I, it's unlikely that I'll ever transition to full-time as a woman because a big part of that for most trans people that I know is knowing fundamentally I need to be something else. Right now I'm wrong. I've never felt wrong. What I am keeps changing, but I'm all I'm always comfortable with it, whatever it is. And you're not identifying with a a predetermined goal or end. Yeah. None of this is for a purpose. I don't dress to meet an end. I dress because it feels right to do it at the times that I do it. That sounds like a wonderful way to live. And it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thanks so much for, for having me on. It was, it was great to talk with you. It was wonderful hearing your story. I learned a lot from reading the book, and, and this interview has been really wonderful talking with you. Vera Wild, author of Skirting Gender, Life and Lessons of a Cross-Dresser. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Again, thank you so much. Absolutely. This has been really wonderful. Well, thank you. Uh-huh.